0: Hi, I'm Matt. I'm one of our volunteer fundraisers here at Kennedy Street. Thanks for listening. Your support is greatly appreciated. Please do head over to our website, www.kennedystreetcio.org, for information on how you could be involved in future fundraising campaigns or how you can donate to this great cause. There we go. Absolutely. I need somebody who goes like that in the background. Hi, everybody. My name's Claire Kennedy. Um, Welcome to our Wednesday Recovery Talks on our Kennedy Street Live Facebook page and YouTube channel. Um, And our podcast as well. Yes, we're doing a podcast as well. Um, We thought we might as well get this information as far as we can. Um, So who are we? I'll explain who we are. We're a very small um, Brighton-based charity called Kennedy Street CIO. And we are um, a recovery connections charity um, led by people in recovery for anybody for anybody who's interested in recovery and that includes um the person that's affected by addiction and also the family members and loved ones so if you need any help or support please don't hesitate to reach out and we'll connect you to um, a solution that, that's most appropriate to you um yes yeah, so that's what we do and um, we do have a helpline as well we'll Put that number across so if I feel you've got any questions or anything like that and um, i'll introduce i'll let kev introduce himself and then he'll introduce our fabulous guest speaker Over hello
1: to you. Everybody. Uh, excuse me excuse me hello everybody uh, my name's kevin kennedy i'm the patron of kennedy street uh, i'm the pretty poster boy um <clears throat> i hope you're all well out there uh, in these mad times that we're living in today we're going to be talking about cross addiction um, and for those of you who don't know what that is, that means you're addicted to more than one one drug. Whether you could be an alcoholic, a drug user, you could be a gambler, you could be all three, uh, or one leads to the other two. Uh, one is that you 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 uh, get drunk and then suddenly go gambling, or you get drunk and then you you take drugs. Uh, so that's what we're going to deal with today. And I have a very special guest, uh, a gentleman called Neil Kerr. Who um, at the age of 19 was sectioned, uh, diagnosed with drugs related schizophrenia. Uh, and at 21, he was in uh, the infamous Balani prison in Glasgow as a direct result of his gambling. Um, uh, he is, is a great story to tell uh, with uh, a lot of hope in it and a lot of information. So without further ado, I will pass you over to Neil. You're very welcome, Neil.
2: Thanks, Claire. Thanks, Kevin. Yeah, the, the pronunciation is Berlini, but maybe it's a Scottish pronunciation. Uh, we, we do like to uh, say our words in our own way. Yeah, my name's Neil. I, I, I'm, what, uh, I suppose I'm still a drugs-related schizophrenic, although I don't have any medication today. Um, uh, I'm still a I'm a compulsive gambler, uh, and I'm an alcoholic. And um, so what I'm going to do today is Share my experience, strength, and hope. What it was like, and then what happened, and the transformation of what my life has become like today. And I grew up in a, in a small village in Scotland, a small mining village, a population of I don't know around 5,000 people. And around the, the age, I don't know, seven or eight, there was there was a traumatic thing actually happened around that age. My father left the, the family home. And it tore my heart out, you know, as it would any young boy. And um, and I, I never really got over that sort of thing. Um, but around that that, that age, I, I seen this group of people in the house scheme, scheme. And, and you know on a corner of the street and I went up. And they were, there was all this money in the middle. And my heart went out to it. And when I say my heart went out to it, I mean I didn't think that would get me sweets, that would get me lemonade, as a as a normal sort of small kid. I wanted the money. And I and I didn't know what I just wanted the money. And and as time went on, um my sort of peers would we, start playing cards under lampposts, you know, for pennies. And then occasionally you get into somebody's house when their mother went to the bingo and went out for a drink on a Friday or Saturday night. And then again, as time went on, in the teen years, um, I would play cards in my house. I'd say, Monk can I play in the kitchen? And we'd play in the kitchen or the hallway and stuff. Um, it was pretty much fun, you know. It was a, a group of kids playing for pennies. There was no real money involved. But at that particular time, my life was dysfunctional. At school, I just couldn't cope at school. I, I get kept back um probably the most horrendous moment of my life to date and I, when i say horrendous i mean um undignified i was sitting there in the class in, at primary four or five the teacher came in it was after the summer everybody had their new clothes on the energy of moving on to your next class and i was asked to stay behind neil would you stay behind the rest of these room three, Mrs McDonald. And to my horror, the younger, a year younger came in. And because I come from a small village, I knew everybody, and everybody knew me. And I swore at that moment in time, no one must know, and this was a self-diagnosis, and this is all on reflection. No one must know that I'm stupid, thick, and inadequate. And that was the, the, the guilt and the shame from that incident type thing, so I felt, disconnect it from intelligence, from from whatever normal normality would, would present itself. I knew I wasn't normal because this incident proved that Teachers never said nothing. No one had said prepared me in any way, shape or form. I know now they've done it for my own good for me to catch up. So when it came to like the, the experiment with drinking stuff and um, we used to buzz petrol. Buzzing petrol was you put a, a petrol in a, a crisp pocket, and then you you, you inhale the, the fumes and it put you into a, an echo, a right sort of, a kind of trippy sort of kind of state. And it was quite a funny incident when I was about 14 doing this. Um, mm-hmm. We got some Indian from school and somebody was doing a tattoo across the knuckles. And where I come from, it's, it's quite a Rangers, Celtic, Protestant, Catholic, UDF, IRA sort of type area and um, and this, this person was getting his tattoo done in his knuckles there's a commemorative thing called the Battle of the boy in 1690 and I' was just I was doing my thing and uh, and all of a sudden the laughter and the tears come down my eyes and these these guys are panicking you okay you okay and the more they panicked the more I laughed and I couldn't breathe with a laughter what he done was he'd done 1960 across his knuckles. Instead of 16, 90, he'd done 1960. So to this day, he's got 1960. And he'll have to explain that to people why he's got 1960, because he's certainly not that old. <laughs> yeah. And um, so yes, yeah, so I think I went through the the the, the normal channels of uh, my peer group, and you don't realise that it's not normal until you. When you think back to other peer groups, but we used to do the magic mushrooms, mean enough every day because I would dry them out. I was like the, the instigator of it all sorts of things. So I would dry, dry them out, put them through a tea and you take a spoonful so you can take them summer, winter, whenever. But they normally come through in the, the September, and the wet weather's conducive to a good crop and obviously Scotland's wet weather. And, um, so there I was, I was doing magic mushrooms, I was playing cards, I was sniffing petal, I was drinking, like, your, your your street drinkers down the public park at the weekends, that type thing, and, um, and everything was alive and electric, but when I got to about 18, I had been getting into the bookmakers for about two years by this time, and I was hooked in the bookmakers. I was, um... I call it pathological you know compulsive impulsive it is quite mediocre of an emotion you know pathological means that it's like a murderer there's no thought of the consequences there's just that that I mean it's a great metaphor that blinkered sat of type thing you know and um and that I was getting credit even after six months, I was getting credit up to £10. And I was on a wage of £23.50 a week. And I was getting credit of £10. But any chance of getting that line on till Friday, you know, and he, yeah, okay, okay. He said, no, that's the limit. And it was always £10 was my limit. And um, my mother had had a, a regular relationship by this time. And I, I knew him. And he, he was getting in the bookies and... He was a good man, and I was writing lines out for him many he into some money through the, the breakup of his business, and I was writing 200 pounds wins for him. So I was getting into this fantasy world. I think he spent, he spent quite a few grand anyway and, uh, in one week, and it fueled me with, that's what I wanted. And I had this incessant need to be um, in a bet, not necessarily like to click to get money, but if there was a, a race and the dogs or the horses and I missed it, I felt, I felt empty inside because I'd missed the race. Not because I'd lost the money, but because I'd missed the race, I wasn't connected with it. I was getting into debt. I, I was um, I don't know, persuasive, you might say, towards my mother. Um, and there was a loan man that came down, so I used to get loans. I would get provident loans. Um, you get something like, you get a provident loan where you get clothing and uh, it's a clothing voucher where you get 30 pound you pay 33 pound back um then it was like loans so you got 100 pound they took the first payment to insurance you know about 65 70 quid and um and I, and I had two or three of them and then i would juggle them about them together pay one off to get another one to top it up to the top again and um My mother had a nickname for me, and it's a horrible nickname, but it was a nickname that that merited. It was called Geezer. Geezer Pound, Geezer Fag. And that's what every time that she met me, that I met, because I always met when I was out and about town, Geezer Pound, Geezer Fag. And uh, yeah, my sister was the same. I would would borrow off my sister and and stuff like that, and um, I would steal. rooftops and stealing lead and stuff like that and i end up um through all my 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 lifestyle is it going into a place called ailsa i was in there for six months i woke up one day and i never took anything in the morning and i said i went i was working in a farm i went seen a guy with no eyes stopped in a tractor no eyes just hollow in his eyes and then I, I, I run from there and then I, there was a there was a crowd of these bees chasing me and uh, I got in the house and there was like every ornament was an eye and they, my, my mind just went completely crazy and I got so paranoid that I was smashing up my mother's house and they put me in this institute, I ran away for the first one, they put me in a local psychiatric unit, I ran away twice and then they put me in this other one, there's like a Victorian hospital and I thought I was in there for the rest of my life. I was six weeks before they would let me out the front door for fresh air, And then you got escorted. You get escorted around the grounds. with with male nurses. And when you go in a bath, you have to have a male nurse present when you go in a bath. If you you don't go in a bath, they won't give you this escort parole. This parole when you get out, you get weekend leave. So they're trying to blackmail you on these different things. You can't lie in your bed through the day. Um, Yeah you get injections all the time. Um, I was I was I was in a bad way. I went in there nine and a half stone fit and I was 13 and a half when I came out. I I didn't have the courage to tell my mum that I wanted to go back in because I I knew everybody in the town and I didn't want the shame of them seeing me. It was a nurse who encouraged me to go down to the, the clinic to get an injection every fortnight, steady every week. I couldn't shave, my mother would shave me. Um and I went down to that clinic, and whenever I met someone, I would go up, and I knew it crystal clear what I was going to say, but it words went, and then I walk away, and I go, they think I'm a bloody idiot, and, I, and it was horrendous, absolutely horrendous, and um, anyway, after about six months coming out of there, um, my mate, he was, he, he spent his money, and he, broke into his place of work stole a video and we ended up stealing we went with we were wee, and another guy him, we get real from the brickwork and we'd done two trips and we stole a few grand's worth of stuff and we had five hundred pounds worth of move we ended up gonna to London. But I spent all mine's in the bookies and the the, the Monday. So sort I of type thing, all my money and that was the the drive behind me and that's where I ended up in, Prison. So I ended up in Berlinny Prison and I, I knew what I was going to do. I'd come out and I would um, go to the dentist. I was going to get away from the hometown and I was going to do, deal with the gambling. And I did. I came out, went to the dentist, I went to get gambling counselling and, um, and I moved into a homeless hostel in, in Scotland. I ended up going to Gams Anonymous because the gambling counselling didn't work. Because as soon as money touched my hand, it went to my head, 2.28, Perry Bar, 3 o'clock ripping, I was away. Uh, I went to Gams Anonymous for the first time, and I cried when i seen 20 questions. I thought, how did they get inside my head? And uh, I stopped gambling. And I use that information today because it's more about not gambling because it's more about financials. But at that particular time, it's about financial, I stopped. Started for the next eighteen years, I stopped and started. I get sectioned about five times. I um, I done one prison sentence of three months, and I done two or three remands, all for misdemeanours or, or, or in different things. I was homeless for eighteen years. Um, Oxford, Bristol, London, Southampton, Winchester, uh, all over the, the south of England. Um, I would come up to Scotland during I, I went down to England through meeting a girl in uh, the Cowanen. I know it's quite fast. I went down to, to England through meeting a girl and in and I went through all these 18 years. And when I went up to Scotland I would get sectioned because I came up and I'd done some, some bizarre things. And not once during all that time did I have a sustained period of staying anywhere or I would have been on medication. And part of being unwell on that type of medication that was on would be not taking medication. So in a strange way that I'm talking to you today was because I never sustained a period of time in any one place. Um, so throughout even like counting the two years in a homeless household, for 20 years, I never stayed longer than two years in one place. No longer than two years. And it came to a head... Well, there was one incident, actually, I was in a homeless hostel in, in Worthing, and I was coughing up blood, and I was attending Gams Anonymous in Brighton, I was coughing up blood, went to the doctors, um, told them everything, he said, it's a drink that's doing it that, and you know what, I don't normally swear, but for, for, for the, the reality of what this is, I said, thank fuck, I thought it was no well. I didn't associate alcohol with illness. It was my medication. It was my go-to place. It was my reward because I had enough money for it. Sort of type thing. And um, I ended up in a street homeless detox just before Christmas. It's some bizarre names I've had of places. One Paradise Street in Oxford. And uh, it was a detox for homeless people. And I was on a course, a 10-day course of Librium. And I had the little hat on bringing in the, the, the bells, I drunk after about six weeks after that because I was physically well again. It's crazy. I was physically well again. And then during that time, I went to Gams Anonymous in, in Reading, which I had been to on and off as well. I'd never got a year. I'd never got a year in those 18 years, but I always went to Gams Anonymous. I never got a year, but I always went. And I went to Gams Anonymous, and somebody at the break says, would you like some help with your drinking? I said, no, nah, you're all right. I was in a detox unit, and I'm saying, you're all right. You know, because I had money, I wasn't drinking. How did I need any help? And within Gams Anonymous, it's, the steps aren't the same. you know. I've been in their technology. I know. I've travelled all around the world to Gams Anonymous. I've been to the World Convention in, in Los Angeles. I've been to San Diego sort of things and, and stuff. And they haven't got the same impetus because... The guy who took the steps, he took a lot of stuff out of it. And step two, he changed it. I know a lot of people won't have a concept of what the steps are, but those who are in basic recovery would know this. Like step 12, it says, having worked these principles in all our affairs, we try tried to carry this message to the still suffering compulsive gambler. And Alcoholics Anonymous, it says, having had a spiritual awakening as a result of these steps. So what it's saying is, first of all, you're asleep. Second of all, you have to go from 1 to 12 to get this awakening. And, and these are the important things because the most common thing for for people in recovery, through my experience, is that they stop and tell other people to stop, which is step 1 and 12. Um, it all came to head five years later. Five years later, and um, I found myself passing blood, cold sweat, and scars and all that from, from from the from the lifestyle and black guys were, were coming where I just went into complete oblivion and stuff. And I thought, at least get found dead in bed. I was sitting in toilet seat, shivering, roll up, hanging out the mouth. At least get found dead in bed. There was no concept, a thought, possibility of me phoning in an ambulance. No way, shape or form. I've never done that in my life because I had no respect for the life. I had no more sustainable relationships, and no children, no job, nothing. Absolutely nothing. It was a foul-mouthed, um, aggressive uh, Scotsman sort of thing. And two things came into my head, and they were powerful. They were so powerful that one of them didn't come into my head in the same year, never mind two of them coming back to back. And the thoughts were, it's a drink that's doing the damage. Why don't you stop? My own experience of Alcoholics Anonymous was when I was 22. I was living in a bus shelter in Winchester and um, I ended up in an AA meeting. In this woman was talking about the crystal glasses and drinking after a dinner party and I thought, what? You
0: know, I
2: was, I was rough then and, and listening to something like that just didn't, excuse me, didn't connect. So there I was. I, my, the lights went on after those two sentences. Three few days later, I had my last drink and I had my last drink to this day so that was on the 13th of April 2005 and within five weeks I was in I went to Worthing from Reading because I knew of a place called Byron Road I'd been to it previously um, I, like the, it's not a detox but the breathalyzer every time you go out I thought I've got oxygen and think where will I go next I went to the day centre first of all um, you have to connect to get in and it says AA the morning in the day centre. And uh, I went along to this meeting and it blew my mind away. It blew my mind because i seen two two personality types. i seen the personality type of the street drinker who hadn't had a drink for five years, and I knew the way he was talking, what he was talking about, that he'd, he'd been there. And the millionaire, I'd met millionaires all my life. And maybe you've met millionaires, but they always seem to be skint when I'm talking to them. But this one, this one, Bizarrely, said he still had still had money, but he talked about something about locking himself in a caravan and drinking himself into oblivion. And I identify with that um, escapism from from breath it's, itself. And um, and he's still a good friend to this day. Sadly, the, the other one passed away, but he passed away sober. And um, that's what happens in recovery as well. You know, you, you go to a lot of funerals and stuff. And that was me. I kick-started my recovery. I went back to Gams Anonymous, and my last gamble was the uh, 16th of November 2005. And it's the, the the power of three. I stopped drinking at 40. I stopped gambling at 41, and I stopped smoking at 42. Um, some of the recovery stuff, I, I went into Ford Prison. I was in there as a the gambler's the liaison, so, that type of thing. so I worked for seven years in there facilitating gambling meetings as part of my recovery. I was fortunate enough not to, I was fortunate enough to be unemployable, which, which created time for me. And most people when they come into recovery of any sort have got work and they've got children, they get huge commitments. I didn't have that. Um, I, and it, I was the AA liaison as well so at one time, I was AA and GA. I was organizing people to come in and to orchestrate meetings. I was like, negotiating with the staff to keep things like, moving along and different events. Um, one of the proudest moments I ever had was doing a tea job. With um, somebody, I put my hand up. And I couldn't speak in these meetings as well. For the first 18 months, you may not believe that when you hear me today, but I couldn't speak. I was too tongue-died, too nervous. To afraid of what you would think of me, saying the wrong words at the wrong time, um, not making sense. But what I did do, I wanted to adapt into their way. So whenever they asked for somebody to do the dishes, I put my hands up. I got into service. I started a, a GAMS Anonymous meeting. Um, and, and from that, it automatically gave me a lot of service positions, a lot of commitments. And um, the proudest moment was when I'd done that tea job in AA and they gave me the key and I was with a friend, I said, I'll never be homeless again, because I spent a lot of times on the streets and stuff as well. He said, what are you on about? I said, look, I said, I've got the key to that church. <laughs> and um, and I used to like take pride in the making the tea and I'd ask them because as you grow up in Scotland, you end up making tea for fifteen people, you know, with four tea bags, you're like Jesus. You know, he up with the loss of fishes and so I that the weak tea, a strong tea, and I didn't mind because I knew people had varieties, one and a half sugars, three sugars, whatever. So and I took print and I was there early, with the biscuits and, and different things and, and that's that's probably how I went through my recovery. Is try to do the best at everything I can do. I got a sponsor, uh Went through the step process, and as I say, my sponsor was fantastic, and um, it would say things like, "I say I can't do that. What would happen if you could? Um, I should. You well, go should. Well, maybe not should. But what would happen if you? And and this who's there? And I, and I later. So I got this awakening. So what did I get awakened to? I got awakened to I run the marathon, I run Brighton Marathon when I was 47, First marathon. I trained for ten months. If it if it was if it was up to me, the guy that I'd done it with, he was a bit more level headed. I had a run like for Christie without training for hundred yards, dropped to my knees and got a taxi home, but no, we trained. Um I got married. You know, that's a that's a big thing. Some people do that when they've been a drinking them. Um, I, I, I got, married, um, got married last year, she doesn't drink, she doesn't smoke, she doesn't gamble. she doesn't take drugs, she's clean level, she's a teacher, she's wonderful, she's vibrant, she's creative, full of energy. Um, I got into education, I went back to education and i done entry level 3 English, that's when I started her, entry level 3. Entry level 3 English you don't get a test, you don't get a handwritten test, entry level 3 English. You have a verbal test sort of thing and even entry level two and that's where i started and then 10 years later i actually got a diploma you know in psychotherapy so i'm a qualified therapeutic counselor and that that wasn't easy that, that wasn't easy you know i was at i was at college twice i would go through the day and i'd go at night I would do english and Maths. i'd do pre-access and different things in fact i was doing a pre-access course and I had, I had all the work and, and I, I couldn't i couldn't grasp it i, I was just sort of swarming me uh pre-access is doing everything that you would do at college for like to prepare you for an access course to apply for the university and uh and i, I was doing all this stuff and it came to me i did a meditation i said if this is your will for me god you'll need to let me know because i haven't got a clue and it came to me when i was doing the dishes why don't I ask my tutor where I am? And then I did. I, I, after the the class, I said, i got all my work. I said, could you just tell me where I am with all this? And I feel drowning. As soon as you get that and that and that. I was keeping all the handouts and, and, and they were accumulating. And that was like coming work for me. And um, I told my mother I loved her on the phone and um to this day i speak to you know on the phone and we, we say we love each other i speak to my little nephew every week um we have a time slot nine to ten we've been doing that for, for several years so recovery's got me an education it's got me a, a wife but as you go further on and i do a lot of service i, I facilitate meetings in gams anonymous and and alcoholics anonymous and i work I was a volunteer in Brighton through the recovery college working with people who have schizophrenia, um, ADHD, all these different little, like, mental illnesses and, and, they go, and they share their experiences of, if it was like anxieties, you know, somebody once said, when I got my buddy, what somebody once says, um, rather than go to the shops when it's busy, I go first thing in the morning. Another person said, "I go when it's raining." Learn information. Either somebody from the dispensary comes in from the surgery and explains what medications are and stuff. But Absolutely fantastic, and it's it's great being a part of that. And they've got art classes. They've got drama. I went to the drama and felt like a fool, but everybody felt like a fool, and it was it was just a foolish happy day sort type thing. Doing a, an afternoon of drama on Saturday afternoon. It was brilliant, and I was there to help somebody to come along, but I get so much out of it as well it's uh the emotional recovery is the biggest part i'll, I'll tell you two stories about emotional recovery to end with emotional cover, recovery is like the the last frontier and it's always ongoing emotional because you don't know what's going to happen within the next minute i went up to scotland my little nephew he's uh got cerebral palsy he's in a wheelchair but he's he's, he's very clever sort of type thing very astute and um and 16 years old, I'm taking him down a public park, and um, he's going to go into the, the later college, moving out of school, going into college. I said, what do you want to do in life? He said, you'll laugh, Uncle Lee. I said, I won't laugh. He said, you will laugh. He said, I want to manage Glasgow Rangers. So I paused to gather my thoughts, and I said, from your unique position, from your chair, if you can see something that no one else has seen or if you can see something that's there and enhance it in some sort of dramatic way and manufacture that and put it out there and make thousands and thousands and thousands of pounds, you can buy yourself onto the board of directors, arrangers, and you can influence over the manager and you can tap them one day and say, look, is there any chance that player could play on Saturday? It may not be managing, but it's maybe as close as you'll get to it. And it, make, I'm getting a bit emotional thinking about it. He turned around, he looked me square in the eye, and he says, you're the only one that believes in me. You're the only one that believes in me. And that's what it was like with me and my sponsor, because this man believed in me when I didn't believe in myself. The other one was my father. I had wrote to my father... And um, there was a bit of connection over the years. Then I spoke to him, like, mediated through my sister, got his phone number. And um, I wanted to make amends as part of my fellowship stuff. And, and we spoke, and I said, could we meet up? He said, we'll speak about it next week. Well, the phone call never came back, and he had a withheld number. And that was like, you know, a lot of years had passed. And I, felt, I knew he'd have phone and I spoke to his sister. When I went to Scotland, I go there two, or three times a year now, in recovery. And he had a fall, and he was in respite. And I phoned up respite and asked them to ask him if it's okay to go and see him. And I had to travel like, like six hours to see him. I thought I can't tell him that. And um, so I got there, and and um, I had the communication. It was it was quite hard to see him in a a different you know different light. And I just talked about the army and all the things that sort of kind of it's tuned into him, sort of thing. Through my education, I was able to sort of hold the conversation. And then I went down and visited him again. He, he was actually like put in somewhere. And then it got to a stage where I went down to see him and he was he, he was actually in a, 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 a I can't remember the word for that, but a hospice. That's hospice. And he was in his last leg, sort of thing. I went into this room, and I was like two or three flights up. And I could see right over this town. I was lying in bed. He couldn't speak. The mouth was drying. I got my phone. I phoned his sister, put the phone to his ear. And I could see his chest going up and down, sort of thing. And I stood there for two hours looking out the window. Just tell him all about my life. And I said, if there's such a thing as an afterlife go to it with open, an open mind. You're going to see your mum, you're going to see your dad, you're going to see all the pets that you've got, you love dogs and different You're going to see all the people that's passed away in your life. So go there with a degree of happiness rather than what you're leaving behind. And all the people wish you well from 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 this side of the family. And, um, and it was a wonderful experience because the next day he passed away, and I was able to do that through Alcoholics Anonymous and Gams Anonymous and the people in my life that helped me with my mental health as well. And, um, and I'll, I'll leave it there. Thanks. You're muted, Claire.
0: I know, I know. I, I, so powerful. Thank you so much, Neil. That was, wow, gosh, it, took me on a roller coaster of emotions. um what a story, you know, what a what a transformation that you've had, you know, um it's unbelievable. It really is. You know, if you didn't hear you speaking it, if you watched that sort of story on the television, you'd think, oh gosh, they've used artistic license. But when you hear it spoken from somebody who's lived it, it, it carries such a powerful message. You know, I've had the pleasure of meeting you a few times and you've always inspired me. You've always left me with a feeling that I've met one of my own. Do you know what I mean? So thank you, for, thank you for your bravery. Thank you for coming and thank you for just sharing that powerful message. And I hope if there's anybody listening that's got any identification, um, I hope that, we, that, that your story's just, you know, planted that seed of hope in the heart. So, yeah. Have you got any questions, Ken? Um, well, basically, I'm just, I'm reeling from that. I think that
1: was, uh, that wh- what you've just said is the, the heart of everything, is the heart of what recovery is all about. It doesn't matter how far you go down. It doesn't matter how, how badly you think of yourself. If you decide that you've had enough with the, your, your, your demons and your addictions, you can turn it around at any time. And as ever, Neil, it's such a humbling experience to listen to that. It really is. I mean, I couldn't actually think of a question to ask you because I was hanging on to your every word. Uh, I mean, it's just yeah. a stunning story. And I, I believe you, you, yeah, you mentioned well, a book I, earlier.
2: I've been involved with a, a few projects, and one of the projects it was a, introduced to a woman about book writing, and um, so I reconnected, and so I'm halfway through it, so it's like 40,000 words, and, uh, and I've done 20,000 so far, and the, the, rate, the way they do it in the word age is because you, you want a book at a certain thickness, you don't want it that thick, you have to condense it into the, a lovely phrase, mm. the irreducible minimum. So, yeah, so I, I'm halfway through the book, and the way you do it as well, and it is literally halfway, and it's just on the, the cusp of turning into the goodness.
0: Yeah. Well, I was going to say, if you haven't written a book, you drop write a book, because that is such a powerful message. Um, and I know that it's hard to write a book. Kev wrote a book years ago, and it was such um, it a... Was, it was difficult, wasn't it, Kev?
1: I found it uh, a lot of people said to me did you find it cathartic and no I didn't I just I just felt like an idiot I felt so I felt there was a lot of shame especially in the beginning bits um, because I was dealing with bits that were really quite untreated uh, in my early drinking and I found that I didn't find it cathartic at all I just felt like a great big idiot mm. almost screaming at the pages to myself, why are you doing this? Because the hindsight is a great thing, isn't it? I mean, I don't know how how you uh, experienced that. I mean, did, did you find it cathartic I um, or did you have a similar experience?
2: First of all, I've went through my life doing a model inventory. I went through my life doing compulsory 45 sessions, doing my counselling, doing, doing the course. You have to do 45 sessions with a counsellor. So I went through every nook and cranny of my life. But yeah, I felt I found myself um, swamped um, with certain incidents that type thing. And do I put that in? And having that empathy, how's that going to affect someone else? Because your life story is not about you; it's about people in your life and your interactions with them. So I'm very conscious of how it's going to like like come across to someone else um, and, and names and, and, and situations mm. and stuff. But yeah, I found myself. Um, should, yeah, just that uncomfortability. Did I? <laughs> Did I? <laughs>
1: mm. Yeah. Yes. I know the. Yeah. Very much.
0: I think so. it's brave. And, um, I think you're both brave, really, to be honest. Yeah. And you know, for for challenging yourselves. I mean, it can't be easy. You know, Kev keeps saying to me, "You you need to write your book," and I am. I'm. I'm a quarter of the way through it. Um. And it is tough. You know, it is tough. It is not for the faint-hearted. But I don't think recovery is for the faint-hearted either. You know, it's it's living life on life's terms is sometimes difficult. You know, it's not... Um, it It's far easier than active addiction, that's for sure. But sometimes when when life hits tough, you know, like watching your dad pass away. And, you know, I, I sought both of my parents to end of life in recovery. And whilst it was one of the most liberating things, it was one of the hardest things I've ever done, you know. But from it, from the pain of it, came real comfort in knowing that I've been the best version of myself to, to be there for them. You know, it's it's just amazing, isn't it? And you're, you're, you sharing your story about your dad really
1: brought that back.
0: Of your... um so Your main addictions.
1: That? Which one would you say was the most prominent? Which which was the dominant um, addiction?
2: I have no hesitation saying it was gambling. Yeah. No hesitation saying it was gambling. Um, my primary recovery came through Alcoholics Anonymous. My Alcoholics Anonymous was my sponsor, was an alcoholic. Um, so he took me through the steps. Um, and the first branch of my alcoholic steps, is to attend GA and serve GA, sort of type thing. So that's what I do. I, I So my lifeblood is is Alcoholics Anonymous, and my, my, my core dysfunctional being is gambling. To the extent, this is how crazy, well, it's not crazy, this is how fragile my life is. If I, if I made it fragile, but I don't because I've, I've got freedom. I've got freedom of thought. I've got freedom of time. I've got freedom of um, where I go and who I talk to. 2P. If I went down, it's only 200 yards. If I went down to the arcade and put 2P into that little roly thing, mm. right, and walk out of there and feel the, the emotions that that would give me, I would come home and I've got, I've accumulated some money, I would go and get drunk, I would throw my phone away, because who, I don't want to talk to anybody now, and I, and I, and and before I know, within, before the end of this week, I'd be out this flat, and I wouldn't be taking anything, and I'd be on a train, and I'd just go, Mm. and that's from 2p, but, Yeah. yeah,
1: yeah, And do you think? Do you think you've talked extensively about your mental health problems? Very, and, and you know, that's a very brave thing to do. But can I ask you if, say, for example, you didn't have that history of mental of mental health, do you think you would have become an addict anyway?
2: It's, it's a very hard question. Um, it's a it's a very hard question. I, I mean, like. <laughs> I probably merited both fellowships before I went in, before I, I had the schizophrenia, before I was diagnosed with the schizophrenia, yeah. You know, at, at, eight, at 18 I was in debt, I was, I had blackouts. I had a blackout when I was seven, I mean, we're down the public park drinking, and I remember putting a glass bottle to my, my mouth, and I woke up the next day and I cut some bruises for head to toe, and, and I didn't have a clue. We used to hang about these big walls, and I went down, I said, well, what was your score last night? and um, they said there the plastic bins with the concrete bottom. Somebody kicked it, and I started... So I started fighting with about six or seven friends to protect this bin, sort of, type of thing. So I, I had stories that I could I could put out there in AA, and I know now that that's a low-bottom drunk story. You know, mm. to me, that was like, like a, a misadventure weekend. Yeah. You know, and there's other stories, you know, of... of of um, blackouts and violence
1: and stuff, but I didn't want to go into the. Yeah. And can I ask you finally? I think what, what would you, how would you approach a problem gambler who was listening to this? Um, what what was you what was your words of advice to someone who is in the in the midst of this madness, this gambling addiction right now?
2: Um, I'd say, go to Google and um, the, the Google Gambles Anonymous. Um, there's, there's meetings online. Get to meeting online. Um, the recovery road online. There's big even locally for the, the counselling, free counselling. There's all these things online. But I would ask them from the core of their being, and not their not their head, but from the heart, to accept the money's gone. Yeah. Right. Yeah. Okay. If, they can, if they can accept that money's gone, it can take away the compulsion to go and gamble.
0: Right. Um, And my my last question would be, um, I know as a family member how important family recovery was. And I get, I mean, a lot of the calls that we get with, um, we've only been running this helpline since before, since just a week before lockdown, um, and it's skyrocketed since lockdown. But we get a lot of calls from family members. So, Could you just touch a little bit on family recovery for gamblers and um, gamblers' families, and what what help is available for them, and how they can help themselves? Again, Break
2: Even do family kind so of um, they'll do it online, uh, they'll, they'll do remote on the phone, they'll do face to face with family members. Um, gamblers in recovery is very similar to gambling on. You know, it's just a, a because it's online now. My mother, my mo- I. When you get a a recognition in Gams Anonymous, right? You get a little gold pin. Well, you don't know you got a coin, but at that time you got a gold pin. My mother travelled all the way from Scotland to to Brighton. My mother never left the home. She would she wouldn't go anywhere, but she she came all the way down just to present that with me. And I didn't realize the the intensity or the enormity of this until my sponsor pointed it out. Then from that, we went and had a me, my sponsor, and my mother had a meal. And she went to an AA meeting with me as well. She went to a convention. A convention is a a weekend um, where there's workshops for gamblers and, and people in recovery, friends, mothers, sisters, partners, brothers. Um, neighbors that are good close friends and they meet up for a weekend two or three times a year and they have workshops on the Friday night, Saturday morning Um, they have lunch, workshops Saturday night they have a a dinner dance, then workshops on a Sunday it's an emotional shower and it's wonderful, wonderful wonderful people my mother went to one when I was doing a talk and she cried so I could see her crying but it wasn't tears of bitterness or regret or, or sadness. I can't tell you what it was going through in my mind, but I imagine it was pride and joy and, you know, motherly type things. So this isn't, this isn't a fad. This isn't something that you stop. This is a way of life. But it's important to have a life as well. As I said, the spiritual awakening, I didn't just go into that type of education. It's an education to go into. I went to an NLP, I'd done landmark education, i done communications. I'm starting projects up myself. There's a, there's a wonderful array of things. And if a family member comes into it, they can actually come in and take care of their own emotions. Because if a wife has got a husband, the wife and the husband stop gambling, every time that husband is late or, or on a bit of a dodgy mood, is he gambling? Is he wanting to gamble? Is he thinking about gambling? And, and it erodes your relationship. So whenever I, I spoke to him another the night there for the first time, about gambling, and a partner came to the meeting last night. It, it, it can de- destroy a family, but it can reunite love. It can reunite friendships, trust, you know, because they can come from the ashes. And really, So, uh, to, to, if the two people start communicating how they're feeling, then it can really accelerate um, recovery. And the, the beauty of recovery is that it's not just it's a lifestyle same way as the addiction was a lifestyle but if we connect them with relationships if we connect them with fun and leisure can become alien um if we connect them with personal development if we connect them with what foods you put in your body um the people you hang about with your outlook in life um what you like what colors you like what smells you like what tastes you like you forget all these things that's that's what's called life and that's what's what's missing, because the thief of all addictions, and that's a that's a generalization, the thief of all addictions is time. And time is the greatest commodity, because when you perform an act of injustice in our community, we put you in prison. And if you commit another act of injustice, we take more time away from you, because we put you in isolation. And it's the worst place in the world to go, because in isolation, you're stuck with your own thoughts.
0: Yeah. Amazing, yeah, absolutely, and I think you are an amazing um, narrator, a beautiful storyteller, a powerful storyteller. You know, I mean, the 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 thing is about our stories of recovery um, is they do change lives. They've changed our lives, you know, and I just want to thank you for being part of our beautiful big recovery family. Um, I know you're one of those people that I could. I could reach out to at any point And, you know, if I needed to connect somebody to you, I know that you'd be there 100%. Um, so thank you from the bottom of my heart. I love, love listening to you. Could keep you on forever. Um, and I'd love you to come back and talk a little bit more another time because I think, you know, there's, there's, there's work here to be done and there are a lot of people out there struggling. And if just by sharing our experience, strength and help with people can help other people to achieve their greatest potential, because we wouldn't be doing this if it was rubbish. You know, you're a great example of this is the life beyond your wildest dreams. You know, Kev's life's become amazing. My life, I run a charity, you know, Kev's done amazing things with his career. You know, this is all because of recovery. If it was, if it was a bad, choice we wouldn't be doing it so yeah if anybody's got any questions or anybody needs just a conversation about where to start give us a tinkle i'll i'll do what i can to help connect you with amazing people like neil
1: so Neil, when you when your book's out will you come back on yeah
0: yeah i would love that i would love that we'll do whatever we can to help you neil because we you're a great man so you need all all the all the support in the world as well to to get your message out there so thanks neil lots of love and we will see you very soon thanks, thanks you and uh, for all the work that you're
2: doing and yeah it's great to connect
0: lovely to connect with you too
2: neil god bless
0: see you soon hi i'm matt i'm one of our volunteer fundraisers here at kennedy street thanks for listening your support is greatly appreciated please do head over to our website www.kennedystreetcio.org for information on how you could be involved in future fundraising campaigns or how you can donate to this great cause.